An aging population, a global pandemic, and economic headwinds. We'll visit with a couple of healthcare experts about the status of long-term and direct care in Iowa on this edition of Iowa Press. Funding for Iowa Press was provided by Friends, the Iowa PBS Foundation. The Associated General Contractors of Iowa, the public's partner in building Iowa's highway, bridge, and municipal utility infrastructure. Fuel Iowa is a voice and a resource for Iowa's fuel industry. Our members offer a diverse range of products, including fuel, grocery, and convenience items. They help keep Iowans on the move in rural and urban communities. Together, we fuel Iowa. Small businesses are the backbone of Iowa's communities, and they are backed by Iowa banks. With advice, loans, and financial services, banks across Iowa are committed to showing small businesses the way to a stronger tomorrow. Learn more at iowabankers.com. For decades, Iowa Press has brought you political leaders and newsmakers from across Iowa and beyond. Celebrating 50 years of broadcast excellence on statewide Iowa PBS, this is the Friday, July 15th edition of Iowa Press. Here is Kay Henderson. First, let's start with some statistics. About 30,000 Iowans live in Iowa nursing homes. Another 20,000 live in assisted living situations. And then about 45 or perhaps even 65,000 Iowans are the direct care workers that help those people in those facilities. Our guests today represent those facilities and those workers. Di Finley is executive director of Iowa Caregivers. Mm -hmm. And Brent Willett is president and CEO of the Iowa Healthcare Association. Welcome to the show, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Also joining in the conversation, Clay Masters of Iowa Public Radio and Aaron Murphy of the Gazette and Cedar Rapids. Staffing issues are prevalent everywhere across all industries. We wanted to start with both of you to see how that's impacting healthcare and 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 in nursing homes and assisted living facilities. So, Di, we'll start with you. What is the staffing situation and, and how is it impacting, you know, the ability to provide care for Iowans? Well, um, I want to preface this by saying, um, you know, these shortages have been around for a long time, long before uh, the pandemic, and it's just made it much worse, just exacerbated. Uh, what were some existing problems with shortages and high turnover. But uh, to give you an example, one of our uh, direct care council members um, uh, told us her story about having experienced um, the loss of uh, 30, over 30 residents in a month's time uh, where she worked. And that's uh, devastating. I remember when I was a nurse aide, two people uh, died while I was um, working and that was in a 13-year period of time. So she's now being treated for post-traumatic um, stress syndrome. It's having a huge devastating effect on the workforce. They're totally burned out. Brent Willett, what are you seeing? Um, I, I concur with everything that Di is saying. This, the strain on the current workforce as it exists is extraordinary. We've never seen anything like what they're going through now. And, and the real-world consequences of the shortages that we're facing um, is a limit on the access to care, in, in, in long-term care uh, throughout Iowa. Um, our association recently uh, surveyed our membership and identified 
uh, at least 45% of the nursing homes across the state of Iowa are limiting or freezing admissions right now because of a lack of staff. And so that speaks directly to the ability of Iowans who need long-term or post-acute care to access it. And so it, it, it could not be a more profound challenge. So what's the estimate on the actual patients that would impact? It must be thousands? Yes, yes. When we look at admissions flows into long-term care facilities, you're, you're looking at, at families. That's not to say that there is an inability to find care. Uh, it means that we are likely, as a family that's looking for care, to be traveling farther away from home, um, and that can create tremendous complications uh, because someone that's in a long-term care or post-acute care situation uh, is, is someone that the family typically wants to visit very often and so being close to that facility is important. Um, so it's created real family dynamic challenges uh, in addition to economic challenges. So I want to ask quickly about reimbursement rates and how that affects hiring. You know, uh, the government sets the rate for Medicare, Medicaid, insurance companies do as well. Can you raise pay enough uh, with attracting staff with the way that uh, reimbursement rates are set right now. How does that play into how you attract people into the profession, Brent? Sure, uh, it, it it plays a, a direct role. Um, uh, reimbursement rates. First of all, the Iowa Legislature, Governor Reynolds, have been tremendous advocates of Medicaid funding uh, for long-term care over the last uh, four to five years, and and. Uh, without their intervention over the last few years, we would be in an even deeper, deeper, deeper hole than we are now. Given the, uh, look, the long-term care sector is not immune to the inflationary pressures that the rest of the economy is, is facing. What's unique for long-term care is that facilities don't have the option of raising prices like most facilities or most businesses do to address that to your point clay because those rates are controlled by the federal and state government and so we do need a a a, a significant uh, reinvestment in medicare and medicaid uh, in this country and in this state uh, to to enable us to compete for the staff that we need die how would you come at that question well um I think there are different ways of getting at raising wages or enhancing wages for direct care workers, not just those in nursing homes, but this 45 to 65,000 that we're talking about, they serve Iowans of all ages and abilities, not, not just in nursing homes. So somebody who's self-directing their care, somebody with a disability, people in group homes, even those in hospitals. So the shortages, you know, are, are pretty much everywhere. Um, but when it comes to enhancing wages for direct care workers, we, we agree, you know, reimbursement is, is an important piece of it. Um, but it seems like those are the only two. The only two things we can think about when we're talking about wage enhancements is raising reimbursements or minimum wage uh, increase. And, and, and I don't know where that's going to take us or, or what that's going to get us if we raise to $15 an hour when, as Brent said, trying to compete with other industries like manufacturing or the restaurant, you know, the association that's on oftentimes talking about raising their wages already to $17, 18 19 $20 an hour. Uh, I don't know how the health industry can compete with those other uh, there, in industries, yeah. Are there other ways beyond? I mean, that seems like the, the best or maybe most obvious way. Are there other ways to try to get more folks into this industry beyond the wage issue? Uh, to either one of you. I mean, well, I would just say on, on a pay, a wage enhancements, another way we could approach that is through the tax system. I mean, after all, uh, the reimbursement rates are coming through, you know, it's a tax uh, payment. And so maybe a more equitable way to raise wages for direct care workers across the board 
and not just uh, silo them by the population they serve or the setting within which they work. So maybe it's some kind of a direct, a more direct uh, incentive to the workers themselves. Look, pay is really important. Uh, we, we, we need to find more dollars to pay our healthcare workers. There's no question about that. But we also have things that we need to do um, as a state and as a country to make working in a long-term care facility a more viable option for, uh, for the folks that we need. And by that, uh, I mean we need to take a hard look at the, the existing regulatory infrastructure that we have in place around the public health emergency. Long-term care, skilled nursing facilities in particular, are really the only sector that's left uh, that are uh, facing uh, really direct COVID-era uh, requirements uh, related to testing, masking. Um, and, and vaccinations. And so we, we need to examine that. That's a complicated discussion. Uh, but in order to compete on a level playing field, um, it's difficult enough uh, to work uh, comparably with, with, a, with a, a wage in a different sector. But when you factor in the operational challenges that, that you face walking into a facility having to test and wear a mask all day long, um, it, takes a, it, it already took a special person. It takes a very special person now. I'm wondering if you can tell us um, a little bit about the demographics of the people who work in your industry. Um, you know, we hear that teachers are leaving, and we also hear that, you know, for instance, principals and superintendents are older, and there's going to be a wave of retirements. Um, Di Finley, can you tell us, is there an average age, and at what point do people retire? Yeah. Um, well, that's a good question, Kay. And, and the last time, in 2019, we contracted with um, Workforce Development to do a wage and benefits survey. And I don't have all those uh, stats converted to memory, but there was a significant percentage of the people who were going to be retiring within the next uh, five years. And the average age was somewhere between the 45 and 50 um, age, age range. Uh, but the other thing that we asked them, uh, those who were going to retire within the next five years, if they would stay in the field uh, under certain, certain circumstances, and uh, we were surprised to learn that a large percentage of them said that they would continue to stay in the field. If we could take some of the physicality out of the work uh, and um, pay better. Brent, do you have similar statistics? We, do, we, we know that, that uh, workers in long-term care facilities um, for example, are uh, uh, disproportionately uh, female, uh, unmarried. Many of them are unmarried mothers uh, who have uh, profound challenges associated with childcare um, and uh, and finding coverage for for other familial obligations. And so, that creates even more pressure on a system because that means that employers like long-term care facilities uh, must provide enhanced flexibility for that workforce. Uh, to meet their familial obligations. In the era of profound staffing shortages, that becomes even more, more difficult. Uh, and so the, the, w with respect to the, the age of the workforce, it is aging like much of the rest of, of Iowa's workforce, and we're going to have to find ways to, uh, to, to fill those, those shoes. I think Di's point is, is, is important. Um, I talk with uh, staff members every day who uh, really drive home the fact that, that, that these individuals are, they're different, they're special, they're willing to work in an industry that they know is incredibly challenging to, to work in. I was speaking with, a, with an administrator the other day uh, in the north, north central part of the state, uh, and I asked him, uh, 
why are you doing this? He had shared with me some significant challenges that he had faced in his facility. Why are you still doing this? There's an easier way to make a living is really what I asked him. Uh, and he looked me in the eye and, and he said, um, I'm doing this so that my kids don't see me as a quitter because this is the hardest time that I can imagine uh, working in this space and we will find another way. But that just speaks to you the kind of people that we're, we're dealing with and if we didn't have that, uh, that level of sensibility on our workforce, we'd be in a much darker place. Are there any innovations that are going on right now as solutions that can kind of be seen as a model in the current climate that we have right now? Are there uh, programs going on to attract new people to help scale up the, and widen the demographics in the state of, of those that are working in healthcare? Sure. Um, well, you know, the states had a lot of federal funds, recovery uh, funds coming in, and uh, some of those dollars are being spent on uh, home and community-based service um, in, in that area. A lot of it is being spent in that area. And one of the things that they're doing with uh, some of that money is providing bonuses for uh, direct support professionals, but it's only for some uh, direct support professionals or home care uh, aides. But, I mean, that's and good for them. I mean, that, that's a good thing. Um, but what uh, kind of con concerns us about all the federal money coming in, it's good, but it's short-term, one-time money. And what are we going to do when that goes away? So I've been around long enough that I have seen so many uh, innovative programs begun and end. Um, you know, it's a grant. You get a federal grant. You develop this wonderful program. You test it. Uh, you know, it, it becomes evidence-based. And then there has not been the political will to invest in those programs to really bring them to scale. And what we had hoped, or what we still hope, is that some of those funds will be used to bring some of these uh, initiatives to scale, not reinvent the wheel, uh, and not just quick Band-Aid kind of fixes. We need long-term systemic change. Much like we learned um, across the rest of the economy during the pandemic that, that working from home really worked. It's kind of a miracle that it worked as well as it did. One of the other things that we learned in healthcare is how well telemedicine worked. Uh, and we hadn't had the political will at a national level, at a federal level, um, to really push the kind of regulatory waivers that were necessary to do that until the pandemic forced our hand. And we learned a lot uh, in that um, experience. Uh, we have a tremendous opportunity, and a lot of this is held at the federal level. Um, to codify those, those, te those uh, telemedicine waivers to allow an enhanced uh, uh, t telemedicine uh, process across the healthcare spectrum. Unfortunately, the, the administration at the present moment has in indicated that they will let those telemedicine uh, uh, waivers expire. Um, I, we don't think that that's wise. We think there are a lot of innovative ways to do this, and uh, both in the skilled nursing side, but also in, at the, we represent home health providers as well, and the state has been involved. Uh, in discussions with providers about how to enhance uh, telemedicine uh, rollout for home health providers. You both have touched on this a little bit already, but we wanted to have a little discussion about the ongoing and lasting impacts of the pandemic on, on, on this industry. And, and Brent, I'll start with you because you touched on some of the requirements that are in place for workers. So, so let me ask as a follow-up to that, is, is, is what you're saying that you'd like to see some of those regulations or requirements regarding testing and masks relaxed and that so do you feel that that can be done now at this point in the pandemic and still be safe with your employees and, and residents? We do, and, and we don't say that flippantly. We, we have looked and we've observed the rest of the healthcare system. It's really the, only the post-acute side, so after the hospital, 
that has uh, these regulations that remain in place. Uh, uh, hospitals, clinics is all on a on a on a uh, individual choice basis, not not a government mandate. Uh, and we we haven't detected significant uh, COVID activity related to the the reduction of mass usage usage uh, and uh, and testing. Uh, we anticipate and expect and and should expect that those kinds of protocols, testing, masking, um, will be. Uh, pulled back and reanimated as virus activity moves throughout the country and the, and the state uh, in, in indefinitely moving forward. But having a flat mandate uh, that's irrespective of uh, vir viral activity uh, seems to be fairly heavy-handed, and we think we can be smarter now that, that we have the lessons that we've all learned. Die to that. that I, I remember at the time that, this, that the warning was those kinds of requirements will make it harder to retain or attract workers, which is something we've been talking about separately from this. Mm -hmm. Has that been your experience? Have you seen that, 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 that it, it makes it harder to bring or keep people on with these rules in place? Yeah, well, it's been a while since we did that um, survey asking healthcare workers if they were more likely, you know, to, to leave or, or stay because of the mandates. So, you know, a lot's changed since then. But uh, at that time, it was... And again, I don't remember all the, the exact percentages, but there was a significant percentage. There, was, there were more who said that they were more likely to stay in the field because of the mask um, mandates and vaccine mandates um, than, than not. But yet, um, the majority of people still opposed the mandate. So, you know, we can't assume that you, just because you oppose the vaccine mandate, um, that doesn't mean that you haven't been vaccinated, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So, um, yeah. How about supply chain issues? The pandemic has caused the stress on that and, and, uh, and now inflation contributing to that as well. Uh, Di, I'll start with you on this one. Has, it has, it has your industry seen issues related to supply chain and, and making it difficult to provide care? Well, early on we heard that, Aaron, um, and probably Brent would be the better person to, he would know better the supply chain uh, issues than we would. What we hear is directly from direct care workers, and yeah, early on, there were problems. They did not have access to the supplies that they needed. Right. Um, supply availability access is is back online. Uh, uh, really, it's it's the inflationary price pressures that that are the are the uh, are, are making uh, supply shortages seem like a like a walk in the park. Uh, now, but supplies are available uh, to the greater healthcare sector at, at this point. How serious is the inflation issue? Extraordinary. Uh, uh, medical supplies are up 30, 35 percent. Uh, uh, cer certainly, wage uh, pressures are are, are are significantly higher than that, um, and, and across the spectrum. And again, um, uh, long-term care facilities just don't have the option that the rest of the economy does, which is either limiting hours, we can't shut down, um, we can't raise our prices because those prices are controlled by the federal and the state government, uh, and so we are incurring. Uh, ongoing and, and devastating financial losses, which unfortunately has begun to result in the closure of nursing homes uh, across the state of Iowa. We've seen a dozen closures uh, in the last seven months in Iowa, and we're fearful for more. And, and they're closing because of supply chain, inflation, workforce. Correct. They're, they're, they're closing for, uh, uh, for financial reasons. reasons. Yeah. They're out of money, uh, and the inputs on that are everything that you just, just listed off. I want to circle back. We were talking about uh, aging at home, kind of started to touch on that when we were talking about different innovations. Why has that been so important as of recent, and how is it going? 
aging at home? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think they're experiencing the same challenges as, you know, uh, facil nursing facilities, yeah. the same workforce issues. Uh, and, and I think that's one of the fundamental flaws in our system is that we continue to uh, define, pay, and train this workforce based on the setting within which they work or the population they serve. And we really need to step back and look at the entirety of this workforce because uh, it's so fragmented. And they need portable uh, training uh, credentials so that they can move more easily between different settings and populations. So um, I, I think until we get a system in place that will allow that, we're going to continue to have those challenges regardless of the setting. And, and, and so it, it's an opportunity that folks that are working in this field feel just as comfortable or interested in, in, in being an at-home worker and, and helping people, people age at, at home. Yeah I, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, that, that does create, provide some additional opportunities. And there's certainly a push for more home and community-based services. I mean, you know, the closing Glenwood in, what, 2024? And, um, and then the Department of Justice, uh, you know, report that was released in, what, last year, uh, indicating that, or saying that Iowa was out of compliance with Olmstead. Um, so, yeah, that's a high priority, I know, for directors Garcia and Matney to get people out of institutions uh, and into home and community-based settings. So, again, I, I, don't, know, I don't know who's going to do that work. And that's, we, uh, that was actually literally next on my list to ask about was Glenn, Glenn was great minds. Um, what's, what's been your observation, I guess, I, I guess that I'm wondering how, because that's what the state has said, they're going to work to find either home-based settings for the people, for the folks who are getting care there or at another facility. Have you been able to observe at all how that transition is going? We have not. Okay. And I, I, do, do you think it was the right move? Do, do you think that that's a, that's a good thing ultimately for the people who were receiving care there? Yeah, I mean, I think there are families who may be not equipped or uh, there may be some consumers that, I mean, it's about choice, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, so they should have the choice of, of where, if, if it's in the community or, or otherwise. But uh, I don't know. It remains to be seen. Um, I, I have very serious concerns about how people are going to access good care in the home, keep them safe. And, and Brent, it sounds like a transition to assisted living or long-term care is not really an option, given that you were telling me that they're limiting admissions in many facilities. Right, right. And, and, and certainly with the transition of the individuals at, at uh, Woodward and, and Glenwood, um, the priority is being placed on placing them in the community, which we absolutely support. The concern that we have is that the infrastructure is simply not there and the timeline um, is, is aggressive just for these folks. We represent more home and community-based services uh, uh, providers than, than not at, at our association. And so we, uh, we would like to see a, a deep new investment in the HCBS system, but we also need to recognize uh, that the 30,000 people in nursing homes across the state of Iowa have some of the highest acuity levels, which is their level of, of illness, uh, than uh, any other uh, state in, in the country. And so, folks, uh, what we, want, we need to face that reality that folks that are in nursing homes overwhelmingly cannot return home. 
Uh, they're too sick, they're too, too frail and too old to be able to return back to the community. Uh, and so we, we simply cannot have a long-term care continuum without a robust nursing facility system uh, to, to support and care for those, those individuals. How can people just watching this at home in the kind of the remaining time that we have uh, show uh, respect in their day-to-day -to, -day to the people that you represent in your organizations? Brent, I'll start with uh, you. Th that's a wonderful question. I mentioned that, that uh, m much of our workforce, our direct care workforce, are, uh, are, are uh, uh, women and, and uh, a, lot of, a lot of single moms. Um, if, if, if you know those individuals, they're in your community, they're in your neighborhood, um, talk with them about how you might be able to support uh, their, their familial obligations. And certainly, um, talk with your elected officials about, about the uh, reimbursement system in, in Iowa and why we need to invest in, in the space because uh, there's, a lot of, there's a, lot of, uh, a lot of mouths to feed when it comes to the state budget. Uh, but we are facing a, we're facing a, a crisis of access to care in Iowa that I fear will get much worse if we're not able to reinvest in the system and continue the job and finish the job that, that uh, the Iowa legislature and Governor Reynolds have championed over the last few years. Di, you get the last half minute. Stop viewing the direct care workforce as entry-level, low-skilled workers. They are not. They are professionals, and we need to build a system that will recognize them as professionals. I'd like to thank both of you for joining us today and having this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. And for those of you watching at home, just an advisory here. The team here at Iowa PBS is preparing to cover the state softball tournament, so there will be no Iowa Press next week. We are on hiatus. The next Iowa Press episode will air on August 19th. After softball, these folks at Iowa PBS are going to be preparing to cover the Iowa State Fair and their coverage will continue in August. For everyone here at Iowa PBS, thanks for watching. Funding for Iowa Press was provided by Friends, the Iowa PBS Foundation, the Associated General Contractors of Iowa, the public's partner in building Iowa's highway, bridge, and municipal utility infrastructure. Fuel Iowa is a voice and a resource for Iowa's fuel industry. Our members offer a diverse range of products, including fuel, grocery, and convenience items. They help keep Iowans on the move in rural and urban communities. Together, we fuel Iowa. Small businesses are the backbone of Iowa's communities, and they are backed by Iowa banks. With advice, loans, and financial services, banks across Iowa are committed to showing small businesses the way to a stronger tomorrow. Learn more at iowabankers.com.